Let's take our Bibles, <clears throat> turn over to the book of Mark, chapter 8. Mark, chapter 8 today, beginning in verse 1. Mark, chapter 8. We're going to read the first nine verses of that chapter, and then we'll continue from there. But <clears throat> Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Again, I trust you had a good Christmas. I, I know I did. Things turned out real well and enjoyed that. That's a very special time. And uh, we have New Year's coming up. We want to invite you to come on out Tuesday night, 8 o'clock, okay? Just a time of fellowship and fun. And we'll have some preaching on that night too. A number of our young men and maybe older men even and some of our children even will be getting up here and doing a little popcorn. We often refer to it as popcorn preaching, but it's just short messages, very short uh, five minutes is the most for those that are teens and above, and three minutes or less for those that are youngsters. <clears throat> just goes fast. It goes fast. And we have a good time, and uh, we just uh, hear the, the preaching of the gospel, which is plain and simple. Someone says, well, they're not really preachers, are they? Well, some of them are called to preach, and so they've got the call of God on their life, and others are just faithful to God. I mean, they're faithful in soul winning. They're faithful to church every week, week in, week out, and they've got a message. We all got a message. Every one of us have a message from the Lord in a sense, in, in that regard, and uh, we give them an opportunity, give folks an opportunity just to proclaim the Word, and it's awesome, it's a great time, and uh, I in no way have any concerns that it goes contrary to the Word of God, it's just a great time, and so you come on out and be a part of it, you'll be glad you did. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8, verse 1, in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they'll faint by the way, for divers of them came from afar. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and gave thanks, and break, and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people, <clears throat> and they had a few small fishes, and he blessed, and commanded to set them also before them. And they did eat, and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about four thousand. And he sent them away. <clears throat> this is one of those passages that we are just marvel at. As we consider that 4,000 people were fed with such a small amount of food. This, however, was the life of the Lord. This was the life of his disciples. These were men who were sacrificial, selfless in their actions. They lived their lives for others. And here in this passage, like many others, we find them putting self aside, ultimately serving other people. And that's a great thing to do. These are walking with the Lord daily, these disciples. And we too need to walk daily with the Lord in our, in our life as well. Now we find them here at the Sea of Galilee on the coast of Decapolis. And the people had been a long time, the Bible says, without food. 
Jesus, of course, is concerned that some of them coming from a long distance would even grow faint and pass out and grow weary there in the wilderness. And his heart of compassion reaches out to each and every one. And with a very tangible gesture, he calls upon his disciples and he has a great desire to feed the people, to literally provide them the necessary food to meet and sustain their strength. In chapter verses 2 and 3, he says, I have compassion on the multitude. What a wonderful characteristic and quality compassion is. It's something that we all should have, and yet something that we all probably have to work at. Some people are more compassionate than others. At least it seems by nature they are. But the reality is, is that to have the compassion of Christ, we need literally the Spirit of Christ working in and through us. It's not enough to simply be saved. There's a point where we must be filled with the Spirit of God in order to have the compassion of Jesus Christ. We live in a very wicked, sinful world. We live in a very harsh world, a place where it's easy to be very bitter, angry, and even cynical toward others. But the fact is, is that Jesus Christ was very compassionate. Here these people were, One could have easily said, well, why didn't they bring their own food? If they knew they were coming out to listen to a preacher, they knew that if he's Baptist in any stretch of the imagination, he's going to take a long time. He better bring, they better bring their own food. And now here they are expecting us to feed them, looking to the Lord to feed them. And someone says, well, they didn't really ask the Lord for food. No, but of course Jesus, being compassionate, loving, kind as he was, would certainly reach out to them. Wouldn't they at least have cared for their own families? Wouldn't they have at least taken care of their own business? Why'd they leave it all up to him? And we could have easily become angered toward them. We could have felt maybe resentful toward them, but not Jesus Christ. He's compassionate toward them. He looks at them and says, here they are, all the way out here. Listening to the word of God. They're going to faint in the wilderness if somebody doesn't do something. I need to do something. And boy, that ought to be our response so often. We look at some of the families in our world and we want to say, well, they bring their own problems on themselves. They, 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 they're involved with alcohol or drug abuse. They're, they're involved in immorality and sin. Too bad. They have to dig their own way out. It's their fault. They buried themselves. Let them dig themselves out. Isn't that how we feel sometimes? Jesus says, I still love them. And I still have compassion on them. I'm not saying that Jesus embraces them and says, I tell you what, fellas, you're out here in the wilderness. Let me just put a couple kegs of beer out here for everyone. Let's have a big party. That's not what he did. But he did provide for their needs. He did have compassion on their, their, their basic fundamental needs. And you know, we need to be compassionate toward people. We can't do everything for everyone. People do have to do for themselves to a degree. But may I say that sometimes we take that to an nth degree because of our own pride and our own arrogance. We somehow feel we've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We've provided an income and a supply for ourselves and our families. Everybody else ought to be good like me. And if they were, they would have what I have. We're not careful. That's really the root of our feeling. And the truth is, is that if it were not for the grace of God to begin with, we wouldn't even have the ability, the health, or the opportunity to, to provide for our families. We ought to just be grateful for what God has given and be willing, as God leads, to share it with others even. 
as He works in and through us. I have compassion on the multitude. It didn't say that the disciples did. It said that He did. And I thank God that He had compassion on me. Because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from far. The disciples, however, respond. In verse 4, they say, And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? What they're basically saying is, Where in the world is someone going to find enough food to feed all these people? That's a good question. It's really a legitimate question. But remember who they were talking to, though. Remember who was there on the spot. Jesus, of course, feeling the urgency of the situation receives those seven loaves and those few small fishes. And then he commands that the people sit down on the ground. And then the food is blessed. And it is beginning, it is then distributed and passed out. When everyone had eaten, seven baskets remained. There were seven loaves and a few fishes. Now there are seven baskets after 4,000. And even more had eaten. As I read the response of the disciples in this portion of Scripture, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't help but think about about how often I responded in like manner. You know, their response to Jesus. Go ahead, uh, I've got compassion on these. I don't want them to go home and uh, maybe faint in the wilderness. I mean... uh, uh, Where's where's anything to eat, folks? Uh, Let me share it with these people. Well, you know, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? That's how I've responded to the Lord often. What are you, what are you talking about, Lord? How's that going to happen? Are you kidding me? In Mark chapter 6, though, we see that there were 5,000 that had been fed. Isn't that amazing? In Mark chapter 6, it wasn't 4,000. It was 5,000 men. That doesn't even include their wives and their children. And and in that situation, they had five loaves and two fishes. And by the time everything had been eaten, how many baskets full were there then? You know, don't you? Twelve. See, these followers, these disciples, had experienced miracle after miracle And still we find them bound in what? Unbelief. That amazes me. Does it amaze you? I mean, Simon's mother-in-law had been healed from her fever earlier in chapter 1 of this particular book. I mean, mean, here she was with great fever. Jesus goes into the house. Next thing you know, he heals her. And she's up serving. In chapter 1 also, there are demons that are being cast out. There's a leper that's being healed. In chapter 2, there's a palsy man that is now healed. In chapter 3, there's a man with a withered hand. And as he stretches it out, God supernaturally intervenes and it is healed. There's the maniac of Gadara in chapter 5. There's the 5,000 fed in chapter 6. Jesus is found walking on the Sea of Galilee in chapter 6 as well. The the, the Syrophoenician woman 
Uh, Her daughter, I should say, was helped. A demon was cast out of her in chapter 7. The deaf and the dumb man was healed in chapter 7 as well. And then we come to chapter 8, of which we've already read. The 4,000 were fed. This plot only thickens when you consider that their forefathers, Israel's forefathers, found themselves in the same exact situation day in and day out while they sojourned through the wilderness for 40 years seeking the promised land. In Psalm chapter 78, turn there if you would please, and notice what, or what is shared or said here. Notice the question that the forefathers of these people had concerning God himself. Sounds very similar to the question that they had in chapter 6 of the book of Mark. Psalm chapter 78, verses 19 through 20. Yea, they spake against God. They said, again, these are the people in the wilderness. These are the forefathers of the children of Israel. They spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Look at the questions they're asking. I mean, can can the Lord, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Look at all of us out here in the wilderness. We have fled and we've been rescued out of Egypt, but now here we are to die in the wilderness. What's God going to do? Can God really feed all of us? Clothe all of us? Can he give us enough water to drink? Look at I have numerous children and a wife to take care of. I have relatives galore. I have people that are depending on me. Is God going to intercede? Is God really going to do what he claims he's going to do? God had supernaturally provided manna for them. He had supernaturally provided water and meat in the wilderness for his people. And still, and still, we find them questioning his ability to provide for them. What harsh lessons that the Lord God had to teach Israel in the wilderness. Harsh lessons. All because they would not believe that the God who delivered them out of Egypt was not willing, or should I say able, to provide for them in the wilderness. So God proved it. He proved that He could furnish a table in the wilderness. He proved that He could give them bread, and He could provide flesh, and He could give them streams overflowing. For 40 years He did that. The disciples here had witnessed many miracles Miracles firsthand that were done by Jesus Christ himself. They personally served the 5,000 and watched as all ate and were filled with only five loaves and two fishes. Now, now, they look on once again in their present situation totally hopeless. Totally hopeless again. And once again, they experienced the power and the ability of their master to meet the needs of those that were there seated before them with little or next to nothing. But we're not finished though. 
it's not where it all ends. There's still more to be taught. There's still more to be learned here because upon feeding the 4,000, Jesus and his disciples then take passage in a ship and they make their, mel- their way to Demonutha where there they encounter the Pharisees. And these particular Pharisees taught false doctrine because, see, they didn't really believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So now we pick up again. Take your Bible, look back at Mark chapter 8, verse 13. Beginning in verse 13, we're going to read through verse 21. And he left them and entered into a ship again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Remember what had just taken place. Jesus just... Share, just provided for them and for 4,000 others. Verse 15, excuse me. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, verse 14. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. <clears throat> and he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. Isn't that amazing? And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason uh, ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes see ye not, and having ears hear ye not, and do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many basketful fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They said seven. And he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? Isn't that amazing? Is anyone in the room, other than myself, a little frustrated with the disciples about now? I mean, can you imagine with me for a moment how frustrated the Lord must have been with them? And you know, God expresses His frustration as we just read in verses 17 17 through 21. When when He makes the statements here, He he says, um, let me find it. I've got to make sure I'm in the right spot. 8 verse 17, let me find it. And when Jesus knew it, He saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? He starts to ask a series of questions and you can almost feel the frustration coming forth from him. I mean, having eyes see ye not, having ears hear ye not, and do ye not remember? Can't you almost feel the the, the frustration in the voice and the questions? I know know one person may say, well, he was very... Having ears hear ye not? I think he was like, having ears hear ye not? Don't you get it yet? Haven't you figured it out yet? Don't you know who I am? In baseball, three strikes and you're out. Fortunately for the disciples, that wasn't the case. After all the time that Jesus Christ had supernaturally met the need of his disciples and met the need of so many others in their presence, his followers continued to live in insecurity and fear. Each situation was the beginning of another drama 
that would ultimately yield the same result in the same end. Jesus would step up to the plate and he would meet the need. The cycle was embedded in stone. The need arose, they fretted, and Jesus saved every time. Even after the 5,000 were fed and the 4,000 ate to full, the disciples could only see the one loaf on board the ship when before them stood the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. We have to wonder what in the world caused them to doubt so much. Why could they not simply trust, depend, and rely on the Lord? One of the problems, I believe, is that the disciples still saw a man instead of the Messiah and the master of the universe standing before them. I'm just concerned of that. In Mark chapter 8, verse 4 of our passage, it says, And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? You know, a normal man, just you and I couldn't do it. It's an impossibility. It could not happen if it was a mere man. But this is no mere man. See, our view of Christ will change our view of the situation around us. If we see the Lord Jesus Christ as God with us, if we recognize Him as Creator of the universe, if we realize that He is with us always and He is there for us constantly and He is unlimited in His power and His ability to provide and to meet our need, then all of a sudden our circumstances take on a new perspective. I wonder who was it that you trusted as your Savior? Was it a man? Or was it Messiah? Was it just a mere body of flesh or was it creator, God himself? Was it simply a good man, Jesus? Or was it Emmanuel, God with us? Matthew 19, 26 says, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Aren't you glad we serve a God? That has no limitations. All things are possible. We've lost that. Sad to say, I think sometimes I've lost that. I, I find myself sometimes bound by what my perception of a situation is. Well, there's nowhere else to go. There's no other direction to travel. I've got to go straight because there's so many, the walls along the highway are so high and the the fortification below is so deep. There's no way around it. There's no way through it. I've got to just keep on going the way I'm going. And God's going, have you ever talked to me lately? Do you realize there's no mountain too high, no valley too low, that there's no obstacle that I cannot overcome in your life? And so we take the path of least resistance most often because that's just the way we have to go. But in reality, it is not. A mere man presents us with concern, but God leaves no room for doubt. His power is infinite. His ability is unlimited. 
We don't need to doubt whether he's able or willing to meet our need, whether he's willing to care for us as his children. His love is unending, and his compassion is overwhelming. The feeding of the 5,000 and of the 4,000, and now this boat incident. In every situation, in every circumstance, Jesus Christ had the answer and met the need. I have two pressing questions for each of us this morning, this, this, tonight, excuse me. Two pressing questions. Number one, will we put God on trial every time a need arises? Will we put God on trial every time a need arises? Isn't that what the disciples were doing? Weren't they basically putting him on trial every time a need arose? The second question is this. How many times does God have to prove himself before we will trust him? Because, see, we put God on trial so many times and... You know, we treat him like a man, a normal person. He says he won't lie, and he says that, that he's, his word is proven, and it's tested and tried, and yet we turn around and prove it constantly. Well, he, he got me out of that one last time, but here we go again. Not here he goes again, but here we go again. And here's my problem, and boy, this one's just as big or bigger than ever. I hope I can get through this one. We're putting God on trial. We're going to say, God, you've got to prove yourself again. Do it again, God. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can trust you. You're going to have to prove yourself to be God here. Isn't that really what we do? That's what the disciples did. Oh, they frustrated the life out of me as I read through this passage. I couldn't believe myself. as I, I, I couldn't believe what they were doing and in spite of what they had seen and what they had experienced and what they have observed, and yet they still could not trust God. And they find one loaf of bread on the, the ship, and next thing you know, they're already, oh, we're going to die. What's God's problem? We have nothing. It must be the fact that we have no bread here. Oh, we're being tested again. God's, are you kidding me? After what I did with little bread? You really think I'm talking about food? That's how we operate. Because all we care about most often, or what is most important to us as a whole, not always, but in most cases, is what makes that feel good. This is all that matters to us. Did I get the present I wanted? Do I have enough money to buy what I want? Do I have enough to have that car that I desire? Do I, I, I just want to be comfortable. I just want to have. I just feel like I deserve something. And that's all we can think about is food, 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 so to speak. Feed my flesh, feed my flesh. God, you're going to come through again? God, you're going to meet the need? Because really, in the long run, instead of feeding on Him, we keep feeding on the things He gives us. We have yet to realize what true riches are. We keep feeding on those things that feed our flesh and saying, well, God's good as long as He keeps feeding me. But God's been good all along. And God doesn't have to prove himself to me. And God doesn't have to always come through the way I say he has to come through. The truth is he's already come through. I'm going to heaven. Well, we put God on trial every time a need arises. We lose our job and we fall to pieces. 
Our paycheck's a little lower, so we stop tithing. We just steal from God. Why not? Because all that matters is me and my needs and my family. God don't matter. I mean, it's all about us. God can't do this. I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to do this. I can't go to church now because I've got other things I've got to take care of. I've got to do this and I've got to do that. What are you talking about? Where'd God go? He's still the same God that was in the wilderness that fed the 4,000 and the 5,000. He was still the same God that healed the, the withered man's hand. He's still the same God that raised the dead. But we don't see it that way, do we? We don't. Just tell us how God's going to provide for us, preacher. We don't care whether or not we see him wrong or have the wrong perception from the biblical perspective. All that matters, just tell us God has to provide. God's a candy man in heaven. He's the old guy upstairs. He's just supposed to meet our needs because we're his children. And you know every dad has to do exactly what his kids want. Really, is that how your home works? Because a kid wants something, he gets it? Sometimes it's good for a kid to go without meals. It's good for a kid to go without some things. To not have the newest shoes and not have the nicest clothes. To have to shop at the thrift store. It's good for a kid to have to do that. It teaches them to be a little humble and shows them that life is more than just material. Sometimes, I don't care if you got a lot of money anyway, don't shower your kids with everything they need and want. Do them a favor and make them Live like normal people. Amen. Help them to understand that it's all right. They don't have to find their value in who, what they possess. It's who they are that matters. Right. <clears throat> I don't think we've got a whole lot of problem with that around here because I don't think anybody's really rolling in the dough. But the fact is, is that we still need to be careful. <clears throat> we have way too much anyway, don't we? Really, be honest. Let's be honest. We really do. More than most. <laughs> Someone says, well, I don't prove it. My situation's different. If, 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 if I could just put my finger on some things, if I could just get this handled, it would be different. I could trust the Lord. No, we, we really are just proving Him. We really keep putting Him on trial. You know, our judgment is clouded by our circumstances and basically our many limitations from our perspective. And God has no limits. <clears throat> His movement is not confined to our social, political, or economic boundaries. His work is not slowed or stifled by exhaustion. He doesn't awake to apprehension or dread or fear facing the day. He's very sure and he is very confident in his ability and his ability to provide. Every, every way of God is good, is right, and is just. Every effort is complete and sufficient. He lacks nothing. You know, most people get around to trusting God with their particular situation. But only after they've exhausted every conceivable option that they can think of. That's usually how we function. Once I have exhausted every conceivable option that I have from my perspective, then it's time for God to step up and do something about it. Well, God, I've done everything I can. Well, maybe we just got to stop trying so hard and let God do for us. You say, well, you know, uh, God helps those who help themselves. 
Yeah, I know. I've heard that. I thought that was the, in the Bible for the longest time because my grandma said it. I understand. I mean, a man that doesn't work, he, he shouldn't eat, the Bible says. He shouldn't be standing on a corner collecting money. He shouldn't be going down in a line being provided for by the government. If he's lazy and he won't work and he can, then he ought to be starving. And you know what? His family ought to starve with him till he figures out that unless he works, everybody dies. Somebody says, that's really harsh. I don't know. That's just the Bible. Last I checked, that's what the Bible teaches. But we're not allowed to say what the Bible says anymore because it's just too tough. But I'm going to tell you something. We've got to learn to trust God. We've got to learn to believe God. And we've got to let God have His way in our life. And let's quit trying to fix every problem. I know I try to do that. I'm good at trying to fix my own problems. And then when I get in a mess, I go, God, you've got to dig me out again. How did I get here? Let's avoid that and quit putting him on trial. Quit feeling like we've got to help him out. I kind of look at it, you know, one of the greatest obstacles that we have to face is what I would call ownership. You know, you and I uh, have been conditioned by the philosophical outlook of this world. We've been conditioned to view our existence, get this, view our existence as our life. It's my life. What are you going to do with your life? I think I'm going to do this with my life. Can I tell you that's a worldly philosophy? That's not a biblical philosophy. Because as a Christian, biblically, before I even say the next statement, I want to share a couple of scriptures so that you know I'm not pulling this out of my hat, even though I don't have one today. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am, the Apostle Paul, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. See, in reality, as a believer, it's not my life, it's his life. That's, that's what it just says. For me to live is Christ. I'm crucified with him, I'm dead. Who I was, what I was, no longer exists. As, as a Lost man or woman, I have the right to do with my life as I choose. It is the only life that I have because I have no life after the grave. This is all the life I have as a lost man or woman. But the moment I've got saved, my life began. I died to who I was and what I was, and I began to live according to Him. He, it's His life now that I live. He lives in me. I have to allow him to have control. It is really his to do it as he pleases. We died the day we were saved. At least to who and what we were. See, we were darkness. We were without God. We were without hope in the world until that glorious day. That day that we were saved and became new creatures in Christ. Paul was on the money when he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
we look at every circumstance and situation as something that we have to face alone often. It's my problem. It's my situation. It's my circumstance. The only problem is you're not even your own. You've been bought with a price. It's his problem, his circumstance. Now, you dig holes for God. Let me tell you, God's big enough still to get out of it. Now, you may have some scars on the other end of it, but God will get through it fine. He'll get through it. He'll deal with it. Most believers live their lives on a roller coaster of events. And each event represents another crisis that requires God's intervention. Kind of up, down, right through another one. There we go through another one. Here's another problem. Here's another problem. Just out of one, into the other. Out of one, into the other. That's about how we live our lives. We stagger through the darkness. Until we finally find ourselves weary, tired, worn out, and unable to keep going. It's then that we usually turn to Him. We enlist His help as a last resort. And then we hope that He will demonstrate and extend compassion to us. That's not how God really intends for us to live. God wants us off that roller coaster of events and He wants us on the highway of hope today. The on-ramp to the highway of hope is surrender. If you want to get on that highway of hope, you have to surrender first and foremost. Not just surrendering one event at a time, but literally, more importantly, surrendering your whole life to Him in one broad sweep by faith. We need to actually go to Him and say something like, Lord, my life is Yours with every circumstance and every situation. In good or bad, my faith lies in you. I'll trust you with health, wealth, family, and future. I yield all of myself to you once and for all. I'll not fret over the individual events, seeing I have given you the whole. I commit myself to you and entrust my life and future into your hands. Bread and blessing are yours to give, and I'll no doubt, excuse me, and I will no doubt. Um, claim them as mine from this day forward. Something like that. I mean, there comes a point where we have to surrender our life to Him and stop putting Him on trial. God, it's okay. I know You'll come through. I know You'll take care of me. I'm just going to give myself to You now. No matter what happens, I'm not going to keep questioning whether or not You're able to deliver me. I'm not going to question whether You can provide for my wife or my family. I'm not going to ask whether or not you can provide for my grandchildren. I'm just going to trust you, Lord, because you are able and willing. In Matthew chapter 6, 33, that's exactly what he admonishes us to do. He says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Well, we got to get to where we stop trying to hold on to the world and just hold on to him. He's big enough to handle the world and the problems that we face today. We got some problems too. Every one of us have problems. Every one of us have needs. Every one of us have concerns that sometimes seem bigger than life itself. But in the end, who are we going to trust? 
If we don't trust Him, then basically we're trying to trust ourselves. You know how miserably short and how frustrating we make ourselves. We fall so short. We might as well just trust Him. He's proven that He can get it done. We just need to surrender to Him now and just say, Lord, I'm trusting You. I'm not going to put You on trial every time a difficulty knocks. I'm not going to test You every time a situation arises. I'm just going to trust You. I'm going to give you three words that I think will benefit all of us in times of unusual pressure and need. Here's the three words. Breathe. Breathe. Number two, back up. And number three, believe. First of all, when you're confronted with something that seems overwhelming and too big, the temptation is to fret, worry so much, and then want to take charge and kind of grab hold of it. Try to figure it out right away. Fix it so you don't have to dwell on it, think about it, or consider it. Just want it dealt with. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Breathe. Take a deep breath and just slow down. Just slow down. And then back up. And try to see the big picture. So many times we're just so focused on that circumstance, that situation that we can't see outside of it or around it. It consumes us. It totally chokes us. So take a breath. (sighs) Back up. Kind of look at the whole big picture for just a minute before you jump to conclusions, before you assume, just look over the whole thing. And then last, believe. Then remember that God isn't surprised and that He's there. I'm not saying you're going to have all the answers. I'm not insinuating that all the problems will be solved. I'm just saying most of the time we're so bound up inside. if, If somebody knows a little bit about being bound up inside, I know a little bit about it. I, I don't, I can't explain to you, it's part of my upbringing, I think, it's part of my makeup, but I have a tendency to hold on to things. I dwell on things if I'm not careful. Things eat at me. <clears throat> but I've got to just take a breath sometimes. <sighs> Slow down a second. You might be reading a little too much into this. You might be making it a little bigger than it really is. And I step back and I have to look it all over and think, okay, hold on, before I assume, let me just take it and break it down a little bit. Let me see the whole thing. God, what's really going on here? What are you really trying to accomplish here? Is this just about me? Is this just about my misery? Is this just about my confusion, my frustration? Is this just about my needs and the need of my family? What's really going on here? How should I really see this? And then I go, oh, wait a second. That's right. I'm not here alone. And I didn't get here by chance. God's here. And he wasn't surprised what just happened. And all of a sudden, I can step away for a moment and go, whew, I don't have a clue where the money's going to come from. 
I don't have any, I don't even know how this relationship's going to be restored. I don't know what I'm going to do about my future. But what I do know is that I'm not alone in it all. He's there. Just like he provided for the 5,000 and the 4,000, just like he provided for those Israelites in the wilderness, God's big enough to provide for me. He can meet my need and he will meet my need, but I must depend on him. Boy, you avoid a lot of hurt and heartache when you just stop a moment and make up your mind. I don't have to put God on trial on this one. I just have to trust Him. Let's not put God on trial every time difficulty knocks. Let's cease to test Him with every situation and simply trust Him. It'll be amazing what God will do in our life and how He'll help us to find peace in the midst of the storms and how we'll be able to face life with greater hope and as a better testimony on His behalf. Father, we come to You. Again, Lord, none of us are perfect at this. Lord, this is the constant battle and challenge of the Christian life, to depend on You, to lean on You, to trust You in the midst of hurt, heartache, suffering, trial, 